If you're worshiping with us, we're thankful to have you with us. A lot of our folks uh, from here in Billings are out at camp uh, this weekend for the Labor Day camp. And uh, I mentioned to the folks in class, and I'll say it again, I'm just glad that the cream of the crop stayed behind. And uh, so we're thankful for everyone who is here uh, this morning. A couple of days ago this uh, week, I had watched uh, a sermon. It's actually one of the most viewed sermons with over 7 million views on YouTube. And as I was a few minutes into it, it seemed an awful lot much more like a self-help seminar than it necessarily did a sermon, and I couldn't make it through it, and so I stopped watching it. Now, if you've ever wondered why it's a good thing not to be a preacher's kid, this is why, because I went home that night, and I gathered all the family around, and I said, I want you guys to watch something, and that's all that I prefaced it with, and, uh, and I began uh, to play this sermon to my family, and I have three kids, a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. And about a minute into it, one of my kids said, Dad, is this a sermon? And I said, well, maybe, I don't know for sure. And uh, they said, well, it just doesn't sound like a sermon. I asked why it didn't sound like a sermon, and they said they didn't know, but it just didn't seem like a sermon. Watched for another two or three minutes, and then finally one of the kids said, Dad, he's not talking about Jesus. This is not a sermon. I stopped the video. They had passed the test. <laughs> See, I think if there is anything that I would want my kids to know and to be able to, to verbally affirm is the centrality of Jesus Christ for our faith. If Jesus is left out or is neglected, whatever you wish to call it, call it something, but don't call it Christianity and don't call it preaching. Because Christianity and what happens here on a Sunday morning and what happens in every aspect of our life is to be focused on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. As one scholar puts it, he says, every moment of our lives should be God-focused, Christ-centered, and Spirit-saturated. And I think that's a pretty good description of what should be happening in our time of worship and happening every part and every aspect of our life, that God is being brought into centrality through Jesus Christ and through His Spirit. We've been going through this small mini-series on worship, and so today we're going to talk about what happens when we get to New Testament worship because something significant changes as we encounter this man named Jesus Christ. We have been told in the text that I read earlier this morning of this Father who seeks those who worship Him, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And the first thing I want you to recognize as we reflect on John 4 is that the Father seeks true worshipers. To seek is to look for, to long for something, to desire and to wish for that. This is, as far as I can tell, the only time in the Bible that talks about God seeking something in this sense and in this way. See, when we think about worship, we have these different pictures of what it's like for God during our worship. Sometimes we may be more comfortable with this notion of God welcomes true worshipers. It's almost as if we come to the house of God and we knock on the door and God says, Hey, well, while you're here, you know, go ahead and come on in and he welcomes us. But that's not a strong enough picture. 
Sometimes you may think of God tolerating us as true worshipers. As if God knows that it's 10 minutes ago the game started and while you're here he's watching saying, one of these guys going to finish because I really need to get back to the game. That's not the picture of what we find here. Sometimes we even think of God inviting true worshipers, like God putting a, a letter together and putting a stamp on it and sending out and saying, hey, if you're available, come and, come and join me. Be a part of this. And even that's not strong enough. He is seeking. He is knocking on doors. He is expressing His love for the worship of those whom He meets. He is out actively saying, this brings me delight. See, I wonder if you thought about that this morning. That as you woke up, God is seeking something from you. Did we wonder as we woke up, God is to be praised because He has given us a night of rest? Have we realized that in this moment, this very moment, God is delighting in us? Because we have come to bring Him the glory and the honor and the praise that He deserves. God seeks people to worship him he longs for it and he desires it and it is in the worship that it is a delight for him because his name is lifted up as it should be while there's so many places we could go i just want to briefly point out from uh, ephesians chapter one three places where paul talks about all of these things that god is doing and what is the ultimate reason or the purpose for it the first we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, where it talks about we've been destined for adoption. And then Paul tells us that this is to the praise of His glorious grace. In verse 11, we are, talk, we are told about how we have obtained an inheritance. And then Paul goes on to say, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ may set our hope on Christ and live for the praise of His glory. And then in verses 13 and 14, we're told that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then we come to the culmination of the reason to the praise of His glory. See, when people worship, God receives what He desires, which is our praise and our recognition. So thank you, first of all, for being here and helping satisfying the very thing for which God is seeking, His own glory and His honor and His praise. We do find from the John 4 text that I've read that God is also looking for a specific kind of worshiper. He tells us he's looking for true worshipers. So we recognize and we acknowledge that to be a true worshiper means that there are some worship and some forms of worship that are not pleasing to God. And again, as we look at the New Testament text, we can find this is the church at Corinth partakes in the Lord's Supper, Paul is not saying, well, hey, just as long as you're here, God's happy with whatever you do around this table. No, there is a proper way and an improper way as they share around the table. James is concerned when, when rich people and when poor people come into a place of worship that the rich are actually treated better than the poor. And the rich are said, here's a great seat for you. And for the poor, well, just take a seat anywhere. That's an improper way to come and to approach this God. See, there is this notion of a God who worships and desires to be worshipped in a certain way. True worship for us often then creates a sense, unfortunately, of rivalry. If you were to use the word true worshipper when you are in Samaria, everybody knows who Jesus is insinuating is the false worshipper. That's the Samaritans. See, there's been this long debate that's been going on about what is the proper mountain to worship God. 
The Samaritans say that it is Mount Gerizim, and the Jews say, no, it is Jerusalem, and on and on it goes. And so when Jesus talks about a true worshiper, everyone there who was Jewish would have said, I know who the false worshipers are, it is the Samaritans. And what often happens to us when we get a sense of who the false worshipers are, we divide from them. We, we, there, there becomes this antagonistic sense between these two different people. In fact, John has told us that, that Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. It does not take a lot of reading history to realize there is an awful lot of blood, bad blood between these two groups of people. And so if Jesus is going to talk to somebody about being a true worshiper, there's one person we expect will be excluded from that discussion, any Samaritan. Because clearly they don't have the opportunity and the potential to be a true worshiper. And yet we find this very conversation is happening between Jesus, who is a a follower of Jewish ways, and this Samaritan woman. And he even recognizes the differences. He says that you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But Samaritans are never invited to worship this God because they've got the wrong things happening. Bitterness and exclusion comes out. And yet it is the Samaritans who at the end of this text seem to be the ones who have God figured out better than the Jews. For they say of Jesus in 436, he is the savior of the world. The Jews, unfortunately, are thinking he's the savior of the Jews alone being too narrow in terms of who God is looking for. In fact, they would probably be surprised to find out later in the book of Revelation, John saying that heaven will be full of people from every nation and from all tribes and people and languages. See, we we seem to have the sense that there are certain people who should not be invited into true worship because perhaps they have a history of false worship or perhaps because of their ethnicity or perhaps because of their gender. And what Jesus is doing is he is communicating a true worshiper has nothing to do with any of these sort of things. Everyone has the potential to be invited into true worship worship of God. And in fact, that's what God longs for and desires, the people from every nation and tribe and people and language. So what then is a true worshiper? We're told it is one who worships in spirit and in truth. Traditionally, here's how this sense of this passage has been understood and interpreted. We say spirit is to do something with one's heart or emotion. Truth is the doctrine. It is doing it in the right way. And so here we understand Jesus say, this true worship is with the right heart and in the right way. That's this worship that God is looking for. But I think something more is going on here. Jesus is seeking something more than this. First of all, we recognize that Jesus is speaking of an hour that is coming and that is now here. Jesus seems to be introducing something new to the discussion of worship. That there is something that is changing between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. I mean, do you think it would be fair to say that in the past, God was happy if people came to him not with their full heart, but now in the New Covenant, well, now you have to do it with your heart. You ever read the Old Testament? Is that the sense you get in the Old Testament? I mean, just... just Just give me your gifts and don't give me your life or your heart. What is it that Joel says of this? Joel 2.13 says, rend your hearts and not your clothing. 
Hosea speaks of those who, who, who God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This, that, this is not what the new thing is. The new thing is not, oh, I want people to worship me with their hearts because before I didn't care about it. God has always wanted worshipers' hearts. The God who, when He calls His people, He gives them the commandments. So clearly, God has always wanted people to worship Him in the right way. I don't think that's the new thing. God's not saying, give me your heart and do it in the right way, and this is going to be the new magic formula that comes in the New Testament. Because that's always what God has desired, even since the very beginning. There must be something new that brings about or that fosters this new way of worship. And I think as we begin to understand that, we need to understand what the hour is to which Jesus speaks. Hour in John is like a code word. And I'll give you what it's code for. It's code for the crucifixion. Remember the very first miracle? Mom wants Jesus to turn water into wine. And Jesus says what? Oh, my hour, my time has not yet come. And on and on in the gospel, six, seven times, Jesus says, my hour's not here. My hour's not here. My hour's not here. My hour's not here. Until we get to the 12th chapter of John. And guess what Jesus finally says? Guess what? My hour's here. He says in John chapter 12, verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says in verse 27, Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. The hour is the culmination of the... It begins in the incarnation of Jesus, becoming man, God becoming flesh. And it climaxes near the death and the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, when that happens, this new hour will have come. A new time has dawned in terms of worshiping in spirit and in truth. So what then could Jesus be meaning when he talks about worshiping in spirit? Well, I kind of have this... Uh, a little bit of math in my genes for my family, and so I tend to go with odds. This word spirit is used 18 times in the Gospel of John. 12 times it is without a doubt referring to the Holy Spirit. Three times it's referring to the human spirit, and the other three times, well, people are still debating about that. But by and large, our default should be when we see the word spirit in John, we think of the Spirit of God. The discussion just prior to this in John chapter 3, it was talking about the Spirit being born of Spirit and of water. That it seems like the most natural reading would be that here Jesus is talking about true worshipers will worship in the Spirit of God, in the Holy Spirit. That that Holy Spirit is connected, as we'll find later in John, is connected to Jesus' glorification. And so there is this calling that if we are to worship God, that this worship must include God's Spirit. God's Spirit must be present and God's Spirit must be at work in this new form of worship. Now, that is not to say that our spirit then does not need to be uh, engaged in worship. But the calling, the primary focus here is of a spirit that is a worship that is focused on the Spirit of God. And then there is this other word, truth. In spirit and truth. Now, I liken John's use uh, of the word truth to duct tape. See, when I was a little boy, we had hardwood floors and, and we had a, a rolling chair that would scratch the floor. And so my dad put duct tape on the bottom of the wheel so that they wouldn't scratch the floor anymore. And then a couple of days later, I was at school and one of my friends had a broken bike and he got a duct tape to use on the bike. And I stopped him. I said, no, 
That's not what duct tape's for. Duct tape is to be used on chairs, and he said, no, it can also be used on bikes. And boy, as I've gone through life, I've found that duct, tapes can be, duct tape can be used in an awful lot more ways. There's not just one single and simple way. John uses truth in a lot of different ways. You cannot say truth in John's gospel means this because it means different things in different places. I'm going to give you some examples right out of John 4 to help you recognize this. First is in John chapter 4, verse 18. The woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, what you have said is true. So here we find truth is that which is opposed to something false. It is a correct or an accurate statement. We find in John chapter 4, verse 37, Jesus says, here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. And so here, true has the sense of something being valid or reliable or trustworthy. This is a true statement. And then we find in John 4, 23, of true worshipers, this sense is not so much, again, here in the sense of being, um, in the sense of being false, but it is, is in the sense of one being more like authentic or genuine. True worshipers are those who are authentic. Genuine worshipers, those are the kinds that God seeks. Same words again is used later in 4.23, where it speaks of those who worship in spirit and in truth. I like this sense that, that one person said that truth revolves around the person who is embodied truth, which in John's gospel, that's Jesus, or truth is doctrinal truths about the truth. Now, you're going to find there's a little bit of a cyclical thing going on here, but I want, what I want you to recognize is truth in John's gospel will be tied up very closely to Jesus. And when you talk about doctrinal statements, those will be doctrinal statements about that very same person, Jesus. So truth is personally revealed in Jesus, and anything that is apart from Jesus is not and cannot be truth. So we find, for example, Jesus saying in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if in worship we are to come to the Father, what is this new way by which we come to the Father? If it is not through the truth, being Jesus Christ, then we cannot come to the Father because Jesus now becomes the means by which we have access to the Father. So in one sense we say in John's Gospel, one cannot honor God in worship without the Spirit of God being at work in the process and without Jesus being infused into the worship. God cannot be glorified if Jesus Christ is not glorified. God is not lifted up if Jesus Christ is not lifted up. See, the fight for Jesus is no longer about the place of worship. This mountain or that mountain. No, the discussion, Jesus says, needs to become about the person in worship person, of course, is Jesus Christ. See, that's what John has been doing throughout his gospel, is he's been taking Old Testament pictures, and he's been showing how Jesus is the replacement of those Old Testament institutions. We find very early on in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We look at that word dwelling closely, and guess what we're going to find out that is? That's the tabernacle. So no longer do you have tabernacle, but now you have Jesus. One of the things that John does that no other gospel writer does is he puts the a cleansing of the temple very early on in the gospel, John chapter 2. And in that we find that Jesus is now the replacement, the embodiment of the temple. 
And on and on, John will go with different uh, institutions, different festivals, different events. And it's almost as if John is saying, yep, that's Jesus. The Lamb of God, yep, that's Jesus. The festival of booths, yep, that's Jesus. Jesus is the light there. Jesus is the bread there. The bread in the desert, yes, Jesus is the bread. The Sabbath, yes, Jesus is the Sabbath. All of these things are being replaced, not with new doctrinal statements, but with a new person, Jesus Christ himself. And when the hour comes, there will be a transition from all of these other institutions to a person, Jesus himself. There will no longer be a reason for us to fight whether it's on this mountain or that mountain. The only thing that is of significance is the person who becomes the temple, the person who becomes the tabernacle. Worship requires a frequent remembrance and repetition of God's work through Jesus Christ by his spirit. That's what it means, I believe, to worship in spirit and in truth. So it begs the question for us, what are we celebrating here? After I had my encounter and showed the kids this sermon late in the week, I heard this story and resonated with it because of my own experience. Charles Spurgeon tells the story about hearing about this young preacher that people were traveling long distances to listen to this preacher. And so he himself decided to go. And he said of that young preacher that he was a man full of great moral truth and ethical teaching. And that the sermon was delightful to the ears and that phrases rolled and flowed like no other preacher he had ever heard. And so for a moment he could understand why people were traveling all these distances to hear that preacher. And yet in response, he said, after the sermon was done, I felt an awful lot like Mary Magdalene when Mary said, they have taken away my Lord and I don't know what they've done with him. If we come to this place of worship and Jesus is not to be found, that is not worship in spirit and in truth. But if Jesus is central to what God is doing, and if by lifting up Jesus' name, God is lifted up, then we are doing exactly what Jesus is calling for us to do because God is seeking worshipers. So it is my desire and my prayer that as a body that we will be God-focused. We will be Christ-centered. That we will be Spirit-saturated. There is no one worth worshiping any more than this God we serve. And it is my prayer that as a congregation we give God all that is due Him through His worthy Son and through His Spirit to recognize that it is God Himself who is ultimately to receive all of our glory and honor and praise. And so Revelation 5 for me became a key understanding of what this looks like to exalt Christ in order that God himself might be exalted in the spirit. And so I'm going to read slowly through Revelation 5. Now here's what you need to know. You are not a passive audience as I read this. There will be a section where it says, and they said where, where the congregation of those present spoke. I'm going to ask you to read those. Now I've helped you out. I've put them in bold. Okay. So watch for the bold places and that's where together we are going to read these but it is recognizing, I believe, this is the recognition of the kind of worship of the truth, Jesus Christ himself, that we are to worship. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written, and on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. 
And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May we be a people who worship 